Uh, I want to read this, this quote to you to, to start with um, by Pete Scazzaro. He's a pastor in, uh, in Queens, I believe. And he says, the word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word that means to cease and to stop working. It refers to do nothing related to work for a 24-hour period. Typically, typically, that's every week. It refers to this unit of time around which we were to orient our entire lives as holy, meaning separate. And for the other six days of creation, for the other, from the other six days of creation, excuse me, Sabbath then provides an additional rhythm for an entire reorientation of our lives around the living God. On Sabbath, we imitate God by stopping our work and resting. Isn't that beautiful? We've been talking about sacred rhythms this year. And this series that I think this will be the last specific day on Sabbath, but we are not going to ignore Sabbath. I, I think this is something where I've been convicted that I need my community to highlight this continually. So, so this, this has been one of my own life where I've realized that one of the biggest issues that isn't a sin issue, but maybe it is, is that I don't know how to rest. Clark did an outrageously positive job last week focusing on our mind and the mind being a root issue. And I love the terminology of micro Sabbaths. <laughs> Wasn't that just great kind of terminology? Because I think we're, there's something about embracing our culture and understanding that we're interpreting concepts of God through culture. And we don't want to be just reactive to culture, but we also don't want to be ignorant of the culture we live in. And the culture we live in, the goal was never that we get super religious about the, the Sabbath starting at this time and ending at this time. And if we do anything in between, we violate it and we somehow compromise something where we're going to be punished or compromise our blessing. The idea is, is that we step out of God's realm when we step out of Sabbath. And the Sabbath rest day is where we come back in, into this place of sanctification, grace, and holiness. And where we bask in his good created order. That's what he did. He wasn't exhausted when he rested. He was satisfied in what he had created. The rest was his satisfaction. And we live completely dissatisfied with our lives. When when we do not turn our minds off, our minds are not at rest because we are not satisfied with something going on in life. It can be something that we're meditating on, like worry of a loved one, of a job, of a responsibility, of a child. But when you cannot rest your mind, you are meditating on that which does not bring you into true rest, which is the deep, holy Sabbath rest. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, um, he, he wrote this book. It was called, uh, what was it called? Life Together. And uh, D-Day was, was this week, the, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And if you want to get my thoughts on that. <laughs> Is it this? I turned it off. Yeah, I thought it was off. Okay. Can you still hear me? It went off. So D-Day was this week, 75th anniversary. Those of us going to France this summer are going to be in Normandy. And we're going to go to the beaches. And I'm probably going to get emotional. And it's going to be wonderful. Uh, and if you want more of my thoughts on D-Day, you can check out my social media feed. Not while you're Sabbathing, though. And the, the idea, though, is, is that Bonhoeffer 
was running a seminary during the time where the Nazis were building their, their army. And he brings this guy that was visiting his seminary that wasn't quite getting what they were doing. He was saying, Bonhoeffer, this is too intense. And he takes them to the place that the Nazis were training soldiers. And he said, you need to realize that this, pointing to the Nazis, and this, pointing to his seminary, this has to be stronger than that. And what he was saying was that the culture that was being built there, this thing that was being stirred up in an entire nation that had the potential to take over the world, it had to have something that was stronger than that. Something of the culture of heaven had to seep in and be stronger than that. And to me, that was such a beautiful picture for me of we, the church, the culture of the kingdom of God has to be stronger than the culture of the world, regardless of what that is. It doesn't have to be as intense as Hitler's Nazi regime, but it certainly has no issue being as intense and as strengthened as something of that nature. So um, as, we, as we this morning kind of pull this to a head, and I, I really don't want to do uh, a long message on this. I want to get back into the, to the Word a little bit. And, and the, the title of this message is talking about time, Sabbath and time, and ultimately reflecting on God's brilliance. So can you just take a moment, just shut your eyes. And, and I want you to do something just with your spirit where you're saying, I, I, I need us to separate our physical understanding of time and ask the Holy Spirit to highlight where we step into the time of the of creation story from Genesis until now. Because God reveals his brilliance in the created order. And he's outside of time, and yet he uses time. And he structures time, and he orders creation. Would you show us your brilliance this morning, Father? Amen. Okay. So, another quote I want to read you. Um, this is actually uh, A.J. Swoboda, who says in 1793, again in France, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, it's interesting that, bless you in Jesus' name, it's interesting that the people of France today uh, they fight for their rest and their cultural Sabbath, although it's a very secular nation. But in 1793 in France, there was an effort to increase human productivity, and, and it de-Christianized the calendar by modifying the seven-day week to a ten-day week. How does that sound? Like hell on earth, yeah. New clocks were even invented to reflect the revised week. The experiment, however, radically failed, radically failed. What happened? Suicides increased. In fact, they skyrocketed. People burned out, and the production actually decreased. Why? It turns out we as human beings were not made to work nine days and rest one. We were made to work six and rest one. What a brilliant idea that God started this whole thing with. The seven-day rhythm is sacred. We found this quote, actually, after the word sacred rhythm was on our year. That, that my wife picked up over the new year. Love it. The seven-day rhythm is sacred. The seven-day week is not the result of human ingenuity. Rather, it is a reflection of God's brilliance. A reflection of God's brilliance. Okay, so one more quote, <laughs> and, uh, and then I'll stop quoting, and we'll get into some scripture. But 
uh, this guy, Dr. Alex Peng, he refers to this concept of time sickness. And uh, he actually quotes a guy, a doctor named Larry uh, Dossey, an American physician, who coined the term time sickness to describe the obsessive belief that time is getting away, that there isn't enough of it, that you must pedal faster and faster to keep up. It's a Western disease to make time finite and then to impose speed on all aspects of life. The problem is that our love of speed, our obsession with doing more and more in, in less and less time has gone far, far too far. And it's turned into an addiction, a kind of idolatry. Even when speed starts to backfire, we invoke the go-faster gospel. Time sickness can also be a symptom of a deeper existential melee. In the final stages before burnout, people often speed up to avoid confronting their unhappiness. I believe that Sabbath is the key to our happiness as a humanity, but it has to be the defining element of the rhythm of the life of the believer and as a community that draws people in and addresses the heaviness and the weariness of society. And it's a beautiful thing. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. So in Mark 1, uh, I think we're going to skip down the first uh, verse 14. This is when Jesus, in, in this gospel, all the gospels kind of refer to something of this nature. But in, Mark is a great gospel because it's fast and he's brief. And in verse 14 of chapter 1, Jesus is beginning his ministry. And this is what Mark says as he begins his ministry. Now, after John was arrested, John, uh, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then we see that Jesus starts to call the disciples. He says, follow me, verse 17, I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they leave their nets and followed him. Then in verse 21, Jesus goes on into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he enters the synagogue and was teaching. It's kind of what happens on the Sabbath. It's the church day, and he's teaching. All the people are together, and they're astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. So they're already differentiating Jesus as not just a scribe that knows the word, but one who has deep authority and revelation and wisdom. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebukes him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. Convulses, cries out, comes out. They're all amazed. And they start questioning among each other, what is this, this new teaching with authority? They, they interesting enough, see what he does ministry-wise, and they call that a teaching. They didn't differentiate between his teaching and his ministry because they see someone who has authority to teach as what their authority to minister into is. So they would see everything Jesus did as a teaching. So whenever he would, just, he would heal the sick, he would cast out a demon, that's part of his teaching. That's part of his yoke as a rabbi. And at once his fame spreads everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew, again on the Sabbath, where it wasn't okay to heal. They're already pissed at him, the religious leaders. And he, he leaves the synagogue and he goes and does more healing. Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they tell him about her. And he came to her, took her by the hand on the Sabbath, lifts her up, the fever leaves, and she began to serve them. This is a key verse now, this following verse, verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought him to all who were sick 
or oppressed by demons. Why? Why did they do it at sundown? The Sabbath is finally over, and all the people that were too afraid to ask for healing on the Sabbath are now lining up to get their healing. The religious system had a fear hold on the people, and they were trying to get their healing and abide by the law at the same time. And Jesus takes pleasure in not balking at the opportunity to heal on the Sabbath, and yet those who don't fully enter in, he still heals them. The whole city is gathered together at the door. And he heals many who are sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, and he'd not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. <laughs> and this is, this is interesting into the lifestyle of Jesus. And I believe this is when, kind of in essence, Jesus Sabbathed. He worked all day on the Sabbath. And as soon as the Sabbath is over, then all the people want even more from him because they're trying to abide by this law that's missed the whole point of what God gave in the created order. And he's, he rises very early in the morning after his most exhausting day of the week. And while it's still dark, he departs and went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And he's alone, so we don't know what he prayed. We know he went alone to be with his father, and he went way out of his way to get there. And he rejuvenated, and he rested, and he pulled resources from heaven into his real human body that had limitations in humanity. It had no limitations in its divinity. And then Simon comes, and they're searching for him. Why? Because there's need. There's always need, and there's always the want. And as soon as you show that you've got something to give, everyone just wants something from you. And he could have been doing more, and there was more people that could have been healed if he would have ministered longer. And everyone's looking for you, it says in verse 37. And he said to them, let's go to the next town. Kind of like you have a line out the door of people that want your ministry, that have seen your teaching, and they want more of it. And he goes, it's time to move on. That's fascinating to me. Is he purposely chooses not to keep ministering to that town, even to those that seem hungry. I must, I must preach to the other towns also, for that's why I came. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues. Again, preaching on the Sabbath and casting out demons. Again, mostly on the Sabbath. It goes on and it continually references the Sabbath. <laughs> and I, I, I can't get out of the Gospels of how big a deal the Sabbath was. How big a deal it highlighted and the rhythm that Jesus established in it. So Sabbath and time. Backtrack for a second. And I want us to understand the Jewish view. I've, I've been really deeply influenced by, by N.T. Wright. I, I, I quote him often. I'm going to kind of intermiss with my own words here, but to understand Jewish view of, of time, you have to tie back to what God did in creation. That God has a purpose in creation, and he declares that creation is good. This good creation, then, has a unique purpose to be fulfilled in time. From a Jewish mindset, we live in the midst of this ancient, ongoing story of this purpose being worked out. So how does this translate our lens of Sabbath and the seven-day creation thing where you work six and rest one? Well, after creating the world, God rests on day seven. We all know that. But then we see that, is this just a day off? Absolutely not. In the first six days, God was creating a world where heaven and earth would come together. 
and it would come together for God's own use. What do we mean by that? Well, God created a garden that was a unique place where he could dwell in and walk with his creation. The rest of it, God could not dwell in. So Eden functioned kind of like a temple, and ultimately God ends up building himself a home where heaven and earth, the created order, would come together. And it's, it's assumed that he would go live in that house, right? Yes. He, he would enjoy living in that house, right? Yes. So the creation is ultimately God building a home for himself to go and dwell in and to enjoy. It would be abnormal for you to build a home for yourself and to not go and enjoy that home and to dwell in it. So this was our first picture of a temple. The structure of heaven and earth that God built for himself to live in. Rest then on the seventh day becomes a sign. A sign. Everyone say sign. It's a sign. The rest is a sign. It's not merely a day off. It's a sign. Everyone say, Sabbath is not a day off. Sabbath is a sign. All right. Ten of you will remember that tomorrow, but that's ten more than yesterday. Okay. Sabbath is a sign. It's a signpost that looked forward to one day when God's purposes for creation would be accomplished and there would be a moment of ultimate completion, a moment when the work would finally be done and God with his people would take his rest and would enjoy what he had accomplished. That is what the sign is pointing forward to. The creation account was written then to a people coming out of what? This is Moses when he's writing the creation account. He is writing to a people coming out of slavery. They'd been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They'd been denied rest for 400 years. They'd been denied Sabbath for 400 years. And this creation account, them learning what this God of Israel is like and how the created order is under his wise rule and reign that he says is good, is actually an agenda of addressing slavery. It's addressing the slavery mindset that comes on a people who have not rested for 400 years. They haven't rested in their minds. They haven't rested in their bodies. They haven't rested as a community. They've been deprived it. And they were in a culture that required there to be slavery in order for there to be productivity. Anytime you live in a culture where you've got a mindset that you have to keep working and be productive in order to have value and accomplish what needs to be done. You live under the mindset of slavery and you are no different than the Israelites. And I think what we need to understand today as we interpret this for our time is that that same slavery mindset is crouching at the door. And it will take you over much more subtly but no less effectively. We serve a God who is fundamentally opposed to slavery of all kinds. But the root of slavery dwells in your spirit and your mind. And you will be set free by the same spirit with the same renewed mind. So with that, what do we do? (laughs) I want us to get a, a, a taste of what it means for human time, human time and God's time to meet. 
And, and as I've kind of alluded to, ancient times had this concept that the Jews were lazy because they took a day off. But this wasn't about laziness, and it wasn't even really about physical rest alone, which I've alluded to, and obviously they needed rest. But it was a chance to celebrate time in an entirely different mode. I can't talk today. An entirely different mode. We need to celebrate time in a new mode. I am amazed at how we get more efficient with our ability to communicate and to do work and to multitask. I don't get any more done. I don't. I've, I've realized I can multitask to the stars and I don't get anything more done than I would have done without all the benefits of technology. Technology, I love it, and it does allow us benefits. But when I am primarily using it for my work, I find that it's lying right there ready to subvert my rest. And so what I would challenge us is, is how do we realign our entire life, our entire mindset, <laughs> to guard our rest? to guard our minds that need the rest. And they ultimately what they need is an identity shift that doesn't place our value on our productivity. <laughs> so Sabbath was the day when human time and God time met. Sabbath time, tomorrow. In that micro-Sabbath terminology, we can enter Sabbath at any moment. When you enter Sabbath, when you, when you just pause and... and your time with the Lord. And, and mine might look like this. Okay, Monday morning. Ah, oh, thank you, God. What a day we had yesterday. And, and, I, and I, I, I make an internal struggle of giving thanks for everything before I, I hone in on the stuff that bothered me or wasn't perfect or whatever else it is. And you do that with your parenting. You do that with your jobs. You do that with your relationships. We do it constantly, right? And we spend Two seconds on a thank you, God, and then we toil in our minds about the other 90% of stuff. <laughs> hmm. Cameron gave me a great, um, I don't know what if it's a quote or an idea yesterday, about even just like the concept of testimony that he was taught, where, where a testimony should focus, if you're going to give someone maybe like a, a, a rule of, of boundaries, 80% on Jesus and what he's done, and 20% on you and where he's taken you from. And we can often, if we're not careful, spend the 80% on us and our yuck and our junk and then 20% on Jesus. And I find that we do that in, in our time of just going to him. It's like, oh, God, I feel, uh, I feel, uh, I feel, uh, uh. And what if we disciplined our rest and disciplined our minds to enter that rest by taking that stuff that we do need to give him and instead saying, I will not give that more than 20%. I will give 80% of my time with my Father affection and thanks. <laughs> what does that do? You exercise authority over that 20% and put it in its place. You don't ignore it. You don't pretend like it doesn't exist. You don't sweep it under the carpet. That's what dysfunctional families do. You attribute the perfect Heavenly Father that's got endless resource, endless access to everything you need, and you give 80% of your processing, your meditating, and your space to Him. 
so that your mind can then enter in, your spirit can enter in, and you can be at rest. And then you can take that 20% that feels like 99%, and all of a sudden you've done something as an act of meditative, prayerful worship, and you've partnered with heaven to realign your life. You have access to that at any time. That was a micro-Sabbath. And the rhythm of our life is to do that, to put that in perspective of that's where we spend one out of seven moments. That's the kind of people we're becoming. Imagine that rhythm. That rhythm will save your life. That rhythm will make a greater productivity of your life. And it will bring fulfillment, happiness, wholeness in ways that you couldn't imagine. I challenge you to try to do this in multiple areas that are bringing you anxiety, fear, and stress. So here's a couple of geeky Bible things that I, I think some of you might appreciate. The Jubilee and Sabbath year, and this relates to the time, timing thing. As you, you might already know, the seventh day of rest and this counting by sevens is something, it's a heptatic system that was very common in the Near East um, and is still to this day. The Sabbath rhythm of, of seven is echoed in the Jewish seventh year of agricultural rest, where your fields, for example, would be at rest. And then the seven-time seventh year, or 49th year, being the year of Jubilee. All debts forgiven in the year of Jubilee, and the slaves are freed. It's like an auto-reset button for life to get back on track. And it's hard to know exactly the extent of which this was happening in the time of Jesus, but it continued to serve as a constant reminder of God's time, setting the rhythm of life every single week, every seven years, and every half century. This was a core rhythm to their entire generational rhythm. And so in Matthew 1, another gospel, obviously, uh, related to Mark with the same story, but Matthew actually starts his entire gospel, specifically written to Jews, and with this extended genealogy, a genealogy that shows that Jesus is of this royal line of David, and he highlights uh, these elements in this genealogical account and, and says there are 14 generations, three groups of 14 generations that Jesus aligns with. Which is interesting. It's six sevens. There are six sevens that Jesus aligns with. And so he essentially enters this grand story, starting from Genesis all the way through in, in his time into the Gospels, where, where we're starting the Sabbath of Sabbaths moment, where Jesus enters the stage, walks into the synagogue, <laughs> opens the scroll, and he declares this super jubilee. This is related to Daniel 9.24, talks about the, the imagery of 70 weeks. That relates to this 70 times 70 years. Now, if you, this is not making sense to you, it's totally fine. It's just the idea is that the Jews were obsessed with tracking the, the number seven beyond just the seven days of creation. And there's all this prophecy related to sevens. There's all these genealogies that prove Jesus as the Messiah and the royal line related to sevens. And Jesus doesn't shy away from how this represents something of his alignment, his rightness, his fulfillment. And here we are, him declaring the super jubilee Sabbath on the Sabbath, opening up a scroll and, de and this declaring that this epic story is now being fulfilled in me, the Messiah. So in Mark 1, back to, to where we were already, 
what exactly is Jesus saying when he says the time is fulfilled? He goes on a rampage to seemingly redefine or ignore what the Sabbath law in that day had meant to these people. And many of us have been taught that this was because the Sabbath was, oh, it was just far too legalistic and religious. There is truth to that, and many of us have been, you know, kind of been soured on just the religious system. And I mean, I grew up in, in kind of a, a, a religious culture that in many ways was phenomenally positive and good, but in many ways also a lot of those in my generation are working out like, well, to what degree was that just kind of being legalistic, and to what degree are we to really walk into these things that were kind of cultural and so forth and so on. And I think ultimately when we read about Sabbath and Jesus talking about it, we think legalism only, that he's just addressing those legalistic Nazi Pharisees. And that's not hitting the point of what's happening in the gospel. It actually misses the entire point. Here's the thing. We don't need Sabbath when the time is fulfilled. If the time that God has created and that Jesus is building for is now fulfilled, we don't need Sabbath in the way that they were understanding it. It's been fulfilled. Jesus was not coming merely to make us less legalistic. That was a byproduct. Jesus' Sabbath message was continuing God's original Sabbath message, which was that the Sabbath was a signpost. Guiding humanity to what? The signpost guides humanity to God's future promises. Jesus then is announcing that this future promise that all the signposts have been pointing to is here, now, now, now. If we're not careful, the Christian gospel becomes, it's coming later when he comes back again. And the problem is, is that Jesus' message is that he's already come. Now. And I know we've got a lot of crap to work through in our context that makes it a lot easier to say that if we could just wait till he returns again, he'll figure it all out. And the problem with that is that it puts us in a position where we take no responsibility for what Jesus gave us and why he left and said, that promised spirit, I breathe on you, receive it, and now wait in Jerusalem until you've got it in power. And now continue my work in the earth. It will be messy. You will have wolves come after you. But everything I have, I give to you. Now go, and I'm not coming back for a spotty, ugly bride. I'm coming back for one that's blemish-free and beautiful. Go towards that aim and don't stumble over the process. That's the message of Jesus. And we can bring the same process that the, the people of God had where they were waiting on this sign, and we can do the exact same thing and, and start waiting on the sign again. You wouldn't go into to Pasadena I still remember, I meant to put the picture up, but, but that moment, not even four years ago, three plus years ago, where we moved to Pasadena, and we had all these amazing prophetic promises, and we'd already been here, and, 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 but it's been, it had been a while, and we're moving across the country and driving in with the whole, I don't know what was on the back of, you know, when you got your stuff. And that first sign, Pasadena, 200 miles away, or whatever it was, it just, you know all the feels simultaneously when you go into that new place. It's like all of a sudden the signs mean something. It's like been there for 100 years or 50 or however long the road is. But no, that sign was for me. And I have to take a picture with the sunset coming down over it. 
and my first Pasadena sign 200 miles away. And it meant a lot to me. And I saved it in my phone. And I went back and looked at it a year later. And said, oh, it's been a year since that moment. Oh, two years since that moment. Three years since that moment. But signposts mean something. You know, it's, it's uh, but it's, you don't see the sign for Pasadena 200 miles away when you're in downtown, Old Town Pasadena. If anything, you just see Pasadena. You don't have a sign pointing you how many miles away you are. It's not pointing towards anything. It's, you're here. Jesus comes in and announces, I'm here. He gives the whole Yahweh, Messiah, here sign. <laughs> not that it's 100, 200 miles away sign. And it's like we backtrack and put us back at the, the signposts and say we're 100 miles away again. And our message is supposed to be, we're here. And Sabbath is that place that we enter into every week reminding ourselves we're here. He's here. The temple is here. The Sabbath is here. Space that's holy, temple, is here. Time that's holy, Sabbath, is here. Because he's God of the Sabbath and he's God of the temple. He's God of space and time. And he brings space and time together. And we are the people that shine it, that radiate that brilliance of God in the earth. It's amazing. So in Luke 4, he arrives and goes into the synagogue, opens up that scroll from Isaiah, and announces Jubilee, the time when all the sevens of all the Sabbaths culminate. And this moment was what the signpost in humanity's story had been pointing to and waiting for. It's a signpost, and he's here. You no longer need the Sabbath when the time has been fulfilled. So, okay, if we don't need the Sabbath, what do we do with it? See, I want us to get to a point where we say, I don't need the Sabbath because the time has been fulfilled. I don't need the Sabbath because the time has been fulfilled. I live in the Sabbath. I go to it regularly. I dwell in the holy temple because I am a temple of the living God, even when I don't feel like it. And I Sabbath rest whenever I need it because it's fulfilled. The time is now. I don't have to wait till Sunday. So the law of the Sabbath could not be reduced to a rule that could be done away with. Though Jesus enjoys highlighting these ridiculous extremes that the Sabbath rules had grown into, like not healing on the Sabbath and so forth. And he continues to do them all the time. It was not a rule, the Sabbath, but a sign. The signpost purpose had now been fulfilled. The mission was done. And it pointed forward to mark the time of creation's story. And that time was happening now. In other words, as Wright says, Jesus is a walking, living, breathing temple. And he's also a walking, celebrating, victorious Sabbath. We do not need Sabbath sign any longer. We do not need temple observance any longer. We have the temple walking and living among us now. And we have Sabbath walking and living among us now. 